There are over 700,000 sexual offenders in the United States alone. With all the social media these days, how can we protect ourselves and our children from these despicable predators? Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast, where we discuss criminal cases that involve some factor of abuse. Our goal is to spread awareness of abuse that could be taking place around any of us and encourage everyone to take responsibility and report if they see a child or an adult being abused. Police had received a 911 call from the neighbors of the Richardson family, letting them know they weren't answering their door, but it looks like someone was hurt inside. When they arrived at the Richardson house, they found a horrifying scene. Mark and Deborah, the parents, were dead in the basement. Jacob, their eight-year-old son, was dead in his bedroom, and their daughter, Jasmine, was nowhere to be found. They sent out an Amber Alert for a missing 12-year-old girl. Then they learned that she had a 23-year-old boyfriend that seemed very suspicious. Could he have been the murderer? So welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm Rosie. And this week is part two of the Jasmine Richardson case. So if you haven't heard part one yet, definitely please go back and listen to episode 20. But if you have already heard part one, we'll pick it up from where we left off. So warning. (laughs) You uh, have five seconds to turn this off and go back to part one. (laughs) Five, four, three. Two, one. So before we start, we want to give the same disclaimer we gave last week that if you're sensitive to discussions of bloody crime scenes, this might not be the episode for you uh, if you're triggered by that stuff. So you might want to skip this episode if you are sensitive to that stuff. So let's pick back up. Okay. Jasmine and Jeremy had just watched Natural Born Killers together the night before. But this night, Jasmine was especially upset with her parents because they were being quote-unquote mean to her. She called Jeremy and told him that she wanted to kill them. It was time to follow through with her month-long plan. So let's talk about what happened that night. Jeremy broke into the basement of the Richardson home the night of the murders. Concerned about the noise, Deborah came down into the room where Jeremy was hiding. He jumped her and started attacking her with a knife. Mark Richardson came down the stairs with a screwdriver. He tried to fight off Jeremy, but the screwdriver was no match for Jeremy's knife. As the father began to lose the fight, he asked Jeremy, Why are you doing this? Jeremy replied, This is what your daughter wanted. Just stop and imagine the heartbreak you would experience as you're being stabbed to death. The girl that you took care of for 12 years, that you fed and ate dinner with, the girl you were trying your best to protect, is the one that wanted you to die. I'm not a father, but when I think about having kids, all I would ever want is for them to love me and to be safe. And I can only imagine hearing this. It had to be so emotionally devastating. And after seeing your wife murdered just before this... He must have felt so dejected as he took his last breaths. Really? It was so sad. In the documentary, he talked about how when you're fighting against somebody who's stabbing you, your body's fighting against itself because of your 
adrenaline rush and your blood is pumping or your heart is pumping so hard yeah, your blood pressure goes up your blood pressure goes up and then you bleed out faster once you get stabbed just the first time although he was being you know papa bear and trying to ward off this guy and protect his family it was a losing fight from the first stab yeah and the screwdriver is not going to do that kind of damage to no. the other person so i'm sure he just grabbed whatever he could oh yeah this is all very sudden for them but then Jeremy made his way upstairs where Jasmine was in her brother's room with a knife. Jacob, her brother, then said, I'm scared. I'm too young to die. Can you imagine your eight-year-old brother saying this to you? No. <laughs> Jeremy told her to stab her brother because he did this for her. So she did. Jasmine told investigators that she killed her brother because she felt it was unfair to leave him without parents. But later in court, she said that she could only stab him once, but stopped because she couldn't continue. Then Jeremy slit his throat to finish the job as Jasmine looked away. Oh, I just can't for a sibling to do that to your... You know, that's just so... And this is is the biggest fact that makes this such a cold-blooded and terrible, senseless murder. Even though we might talk about some reasons we think are behind what happened... We're absolutely not defending these two. I mean, it's terrible what they did. Jeremy had a getaway driver waiting outside, and after all of this, he left the house and went to his trailer. Jasmine stayed back at her house. She went through her mom's purse and took a credit card. She packed a bag, and then she called a taxi. On the taxi ride, she came across as calm and collected. She went to a gas station with an ATM and withdrew cash from the card. Then she had the taxi driver drop her off at Jeremy's trailer. Two hours after the murders, Jeremy and Jasmine went out to dinner at a nearby restaurant. They were laughing and making out at the restaurant, and they could finally be together with no one to stop them. Well, not her parents anyways. And now we want to pause to share another podcast with you that we think you might enjoy if you like our show. In 1990, newspaper reporter Scott Reeder found a nine-year-old girl's body abandoned in an Iowa school playground. I got to the school right when it was starting to get dark, and there was a police officer there, and the two of us walked over to where we could see a fire on the edge of the playground. We got about a foot from the flames and looked down and realized it was the body of a little girl that had been doused with gasoline and set on fire. The case has haunted him for 27 years. Did the police arrest and a jury convict the wrong person? In 2017, Scott Reeder and the national public radio affiliate WVIK launched the podcast Suspect Convictions to explore that question. Suspect Convictions soared to number two in the world on iTunes' overall chart and captured a top honor for investigative reporting from the Associated Press. The defendant, Stanley Liggins, who has been granted a new trial, will go to court beginning August 28th. And Suspect Convictions will cover every day of the trial and provide you with the testimony jurors will hear, as well as some information they won't. I ran a second test on a different type of test. It's called a peak of tension test. I listed seven different causes of death. Well, he nailed strangulation. He reacted to the strangulation because he knew that's how she died. So then I went over and told him, that's the guy. Well, then I was a hero. 
Suspect Convictions is a podcast unlike any other. It asks the tough questions others fear to raise. They talk to witnesses. I was brought out of my cell and told I needed to testify or else I'd be charged with accessory after the fact. They talk to past jurors. I've grown up with black people all my life, you know, in Africa, and most of them, you know, they, they can be, um, I won't say threatening, but, but they do appear sometimes to be aggressive looking or, you know, uh, I don't want to sound like a racist or anything like that. They talk to lawyers. Don't be misled by dramatizations about circumstantial evidence. Evidence is evidence, and the jury is permitted and directed to give the weight that the evidence deserves. And they look at irregularities in the case. In one of the later post-conviction relief cases, it was determined that there were about 70 police reports that weren't turned over from the police department to the county attorney's office that had some exculpatory evidence. Suspect Convictions complies with the high reporting standards of National Public Radio. It will post daily episodes throughout the trial, as well as commentary and information that will never be heard in the courtroom. To subscribe, look for Suspect Convictions on whatever podcasting platform you use. And now back to the show. So as we already talked about, um, the two were arrested after they found them in Saskatchewan, and they were put in jail. And before the trial, while they were in jail, uh, she wrote a letter to Jeremy telling him that she missed him and that her lawyer had told them that they were legends. And I'm guessing that's just her interpretation of her lawyer maybe telling her that they were all over the news. But she really seemed to be, like, soaking in the attention and Mm -hmm. and basking in it because I don't think... Right. The seriousness had sunken in yet. Yeah, obviously the situation hasn't hit her, right? I mean, no. Like we said, she's twelve. Yeah, Jeremy wrote back to her, "I love you more than life itself." He also told her that she had been added to his visitor list, so she could visit him once she was released. It seemed like they assumed Jasmine would not be punished for her role in these murders. So, like we said, not sinking in yet. <laughs> he told her. Stay true to your promises, and I shall to mine. At the end of the letter, he wrote, P.S. You said you wanted to get engaged? Then here's a cue. Will you marry me? If so, then it is a verbal agreement. Now, this really seemed to excite Jasmine. (laughs) Oh, my God. How romantic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She wrote back, Ah, ha, ha, ha. I never thought I'd find myself hysterically laughing in a holding cell in these kinds of circumstances. Or ever, really. But still, you make me so happy. Yes, I will. I would love to. Of course I'll come visit you. You'll have to find out um, where you're being held. God, I'm so happy. I must be happily insane then. Yeah, she must be happily insane. Yeah, dude. This girl seems to be off the rails. Completely off the rails. They had been arrested for killing her entire family, but apparently the reality has not set in yet, like we said. But remember, she was only 12, he was 23, and not even he seemed to be remorseful or realize the magnitude of what they had done. But what's funny in her reply to him is that she agrees to marry him, and then also, yeah, I'll come visit you, but you have to let me know where you are. (laughs) It's a real, I don't know. 
there's a real gap of yeah she doesn't know how all this stuff works yet. yeah she also seemed to be obsessed with the fame they were gaining through media coverage because she told him in her letter that we've been in the papers every day apparently i haven't seen them but hopefully can on monday like did she think she would be out by monday or what does she think they're gonna say are they gonna put her in good light or does she just want attention even if it's bad attention they were in a weird thing so maybe even if it's in a bad light that's what they want yeah but what could be going on in a 12 year old girl's head to make her feel so giddy about her and her boyfriend being in jail over killing her family and getting engaged to the killer of her parents it's a shocking, senseless, and confusing story. Very much so. So let's talk about the trials. Well, Jasmine had some friends that testified in court that she used to be a nice girl. But then Jasmine completely changed after she started dating Jeremy. Apparently, Jasmine had told these friends several times that she wanted to kill her parents and run away with Jeremy because they were trying to keep her apart from him. But the friends never took her seriously. During trial, Jasmine blamed Jeremy for the tragedy of her family. She said that she had only talked about killing her family, but wasn't actually going to do it. She claimed that it wasn't unusual for her circle of friends to talk about killing people, and she didn't think he would actually take her that seriously. That is strange. I know. that. What's strange to me is that her circle of friends, just they talk about killing people, like, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It does seem to be a very over-the-top group of goth kids. Yes. But... That's how the documentary made it out to be. She gave her own account of the night. You want to talk about that? Yeah, it went like this. She called Jeremy and told him that she wanted to kill her parents because they were mean to her. But she told the court that she was only joking about this because she was upset. Later that night, she said she woke up to the sound of Jeremy breaking into the house. She said her mom went downstairs first, and then she heard her mom screaming. Then Jasmine's father followed, and she heard Jeremy and her father fighting. She went downstairs and saw her mom lying in blood. Then she ran upstairs and grabbed the knife that she kept in her closet to protect herself. She said Jeremy came upstairs covered in blood, and he yelled at her to kill her brother. Now, Jasmine said that Jeremy yelled, stab him, just stab him, slit his throat. And she replied, I can't, I can't. And he said, you have to. I did this for you. Well, this part is so sad, and we want to remember this young boy, Jacob, because him and the parents are the real victims in this story, and we he, don't want to forget that. He was eight. So he had nothing to do with any of this. Yeah. The parents were the ones that were forbidding this love that they should have been forbidding. Like, it was good that they were doing that. But for Jacob to die, he was so young, it was a a pointless death that completely could have been avoided. And Jasmine's the one that testified that his last words were, I'm scared. I'm too young to die. After this, she said she stabbed him, but she could only bring herself to do it once, and she froze. But Jeremy grabbed the knife and slit Jacob's throat. Jasmine said she couldn't watch Jacob after this, but she heard gurgling. This is so horribly sad and tragic. I mean, how could this happen? I know. I mean, I could buy this version of events, even though it doesn't line up with uh, Jeremy's. 
It but, doesn't line up with the letters that they were sending back and forth. She seemed so deliriously happy. Yeah, the trials were much later. So she had time to think about it and let it soak in. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a total possibility that at first she said these things to try to sound cool and fit in with her new crowd. And that when Jeremy replied, like, that's a good idea, but we need a plan or whatever he said. Jasmine didn't want to back down and be called a poser because kids that are just becoming self-conscious are obsessed with approval from older, cooler kids. You know, we all were. Oh, yeah, totally. As a 12-year-old, I was thinking a lot more about fitting in and getting approval from older kids than I was thinking about moral integrity and right versus wrong. If she really didn't believe that he was serious about following through, She could have thought that she was just carrying on a conversation and sounding tough with her new crowd of goth kids, especially if she was mad at her parents for not letting her see him. And she was 12. She's not even close to old enough to consent to a relationship. They were having a sexual relationship, too. Yeah. She's getting really mixed up in this. Yeah, this age of consent exists for a reason, because young kids can't always make decisions that are in their best interest for the future. And she was making an awfully serious and intense decision with an incapable and inexperienced mind. I don't know for sure, but this is just something to chew on. That She was a victim herself here mm-hmm. of statutory abuse, statutory rape. Manipulation and all that good stuff. Yeah. Well, Jasmine also told the court that a week before the murders, she had snuck out of her house and made her way over to Jeremy's trailer, and they had sex. To a 12-year-old girl, this could really form a strong bond in her mind. I mean, where her thinking could be so clouded by lust. And she said, I loved him so much, I thought this would bring us closer together. I heard a lot of people saying that Jasmine really played up the manipulation factor in court, which is totally possible, but it's also a really cynical way to look at it. I mean, it's true lawyers know exactly what to have their defendants say to frame things in the right way. But personally, I think it's entirely possible that Jasmine was just really into talking about this kind of thing, but she didn't really believe he would actually do such a terrible thing. Yeah, I would call this statutory manipulation. How could Jasmine ever think that killing people was a good idea? She was a 12-year-old girl in the bloom of self-consciousness. Yeah, in the Jewish faith, a person's considered a man at 13. And I remember being seven and thinking I had enough schooling and I was ready for life. I didn't realize how ignorant and dumb I was back then, but I still had that desire to be independent and have my own identity. And that was at age seven. That's so weird. I know. (laughs) But I specifically remember thinking that. Really? I was playing with my horse. Horses. (laughs) But the goth people that she started hanging out with were new and exciting for her, and she probably really wanted to fit in with them and seem cool, so she would talk about the same kind of dark things they would. In my opinion, Jeremy Steinke was kind of a dumb dude, and we'll talk more about his past abuse and its effects later. But I can totally buy that Jasmine may have been just talking big this whole time, trying to fit in with her new group of friends. And Jeremy, dealing with his own PTSD and being drunk and high all the time, and possibly kind of dumb, could have been a horribly perfect match to Jasmine's identity crisis and frustrated ramblings. Mm 
Mm-hmm. In other words, they were a deadly combination. And I don't know if we mentioned it yet, but Jeremy was drunk and high at the time of the murders, and he was quite often. Like we talked about earlier, Jasmine had told police that she killed her brother because she didn't feel it was right to leave him without parents. And that could have been her thought process to justify following through with Jeremy's orders. Or she was lying at some point, but we don't really know for sure, so we can all draw our own conclusions here. But during cross-examination, the prosecution attorney asked Jasmine why she didn't try to stop the murders, or didn't tell anyone about them afterwards. That's a good question. She pointed out the fact that Jasmine could have called 911 or run to a neighbor's house for help. Jasmine replied, I was in shock and practically sleepwalking. I was like a zombie, and I could barely function. It didn't even enter my mind to call 911. Another factor the prosecution brought up was how, after the murder, Jeremy left the house via a getaway driver without Jasmine. Then Jasmine stole her mother's credit card to get a taxi and withdrew money from an ATM before meeting Jeremy back at his trailer. She had her chance to run, and she had her chance to call for help. This is all very compelling evidence that Jasmine was serious about murdering her family. But her defense brought up some more interesting points. He said, To find her guilty, you have to find that she intended for Jeremy to kill her family. They didn't have a destination to run away to after the murders. Jasmine didn't pack a bag in advance, and Jeremy left her at home after the murders. He continued, That proves that there was no planning on her part. But she did seem to have a pretty clear plan based on her actions. Stealing the credit card, getting a taxi, withdrawing money at an ATM, and meeting Jeremy. This was just hours after seeing this man kill her entire family. And she never made an effort to call the police or seek help. So, I don't know. One more interesting thing from the trial was that one of the officers that arrested Jasmine and Jeremy testified that Jasmine was put in the back of the police car with three friends that were with them at the time of the arrest. He said they yelled obscenities and giggled in the back of the car. <laughs> obscenities. <laughs> it's usually pronounced obscenities, but... Um, no. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to correct you. It's okay, but you did. <laughs> After a month-long trial and three hours of deliberation, the jury found Jasmine guilty on three counts of first-degree murder. When Jasmine heard this, she put her hand on her mouth and cried. Under Canadian law, no one under 14 can be charged as an adult and can only be given a maximum sentence of 10 years. So she got six years in the psych hospital, followed by four years of supervision. This sounds like a pretty light sentence for wiping out your entire family. Yeah, but I like the Canadian law that you can only get 10 if you're under 14. I think that yeah. if you're a child, you don't know what you're really doing or capable yeah, of. They're very much more based in rehabilitation than punishment. So, But to qualify for that um, six years in the psych hospital and four years of supervision, she had to be diagnosed with some kind of mental disorder, and she was diagnosed with a conduct disorder, which means you're extremely defiant and oppositional. I didn't know that was an actual disorder. We're going to talk a little bit about what can happen when you force your children into certain lifestyles without dignifying them with knowledge and why a path is actually good for them. In other words, educating them and allowing them to make the choice to follow the lifestyle that you've taught them about instead of forcing them into it. Mm-hmm. 
It's a very touchy subject, and obviously I'm not blaming Jasmine's parents by any stretch of the imagination for the way she acted, but Jasmine was part of a somewhat strict Catholic family, and in Catholic school, uh, she was forced to wear a uniform, and no doubt she was showered in disappointment and shame when she began wanting to find her own identity as a goth. Right. In the documentary about this case, Jasmine was described as a typical ordinary Catholic girl, before the murders. There's a dramatization, and in it, the teacher is forcing her to wash off a tattoo that she made for herself on her arm and was yelling at her angrily, I'm so disappointed in you. You know you're not supposed to wear that at school. And then she says, what is that? Pointing to her belt. (laughs) (laughs) Personally, I think it's really tough for kids that are forced by their parents to take on an identity as a squeaky clean religious person at such a young age. And even if a certain path is what may be best for a child, forcing them down that path instead of guiding them may be really intimidating and almost seem hopeless for a child. In researching this, I found a quote from a child comparing reaching the lofty goals of living up to their parents' expectations to reaching the top of a giant staircase and feeling like they're not even on the steps yet. And the fear of taking the first step makes them run even farther and farther away from the stairway. So basically, a child needs to be guided and taught to understand why a certain path their parents want them to take is in their best interests and would be good for them instead of just being forced to take it and not really understand why and then get met with anger and disappointment and shame when they don't live up to the expectations that they really don't understand. Mm -hmm. According to the documentary, there was a real war going on in this household while Jasmine was searching for her own identity and turned to the goth movement to find it. Yeah, like I said, I'm not at all blaming the parents for what happened, but it could have played a huge role in Jasmine's frustration if, instead of loving guidance back onto the right path, she just received angry shame, making her feel like she was so stupid for even thinking that she could date an older man or make her own decisions about her identity. Taking away someone's agency and dignity no matter how young they are, is often what leads to low self-worth and or outright defiance, which is what she was diagnosed with. Mm -hmm. Defiance disorder. Conduct disorder. Well, yeah, but the characteristic of that was defiance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And opposition. So that's a lot to chew on. It is. But we're going to switch gears here and talk about Jeremy's trial. Jeremy admitted to killing the parents. He said he wore the mask and dark clothes so they wouldn't know who he was. And he also said he was extremely drunk and high at the time. Jeremy's defense was that he was a victim of a brutalized childhood, that he was a lovesick loser hopped up on drugs and alcohol and too spaced out to form the intent to kill. His attorney told the court that the killings were an impulsive reaction, triggered by Jeremy's excessive intoxication and drug abuse that night. I'm sorry, but has drug and alcohol abuse ever excused someone from responsibility for a stupid crime before? This seems like such a dumb defense to me. They're framing Jasmine as the puppet master and saying that it wasn't his fault because he was drunk and high. Well, they gotta try something. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So according to his defense, Jeffrey Dahmer shouldn't be held responsible for his actions either. It's kind of ridiculous. After Jeremy's arrest... 
an undercover officer had posed as an inmate and wore a recording device while talking to Jeremy. In the recording, Jeremy said to the person he thought was his fellow inmate, You hear about the, that triple homicide? You're looking at him. And me and my old lady have become legends. <laughs> his old lady? <laughs> Who's 12? <laughs> wow. Uh, is he just trying to fit in with the hardened criminals he would be around for the rest of his life? Maybe. Maybe it's the drugs and the alcohol intoxication talking. Well, I I think he would have been detoxed at this point. That's what his defense would say, though. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, Jeremy testified that he tried to talk Jasmine out of the murders, but that she wouldn't have it and that he's a man of his word. Oh, that's touching. I don't think there was any evidence of him trying to talk her out of it, but Mm -hmm. he said Jasmine was the one who killed her brother Jacob and that she wasn't even upset about it afterwards. He asked the person that he thought was um, his other inmate, who was the undercover cop, you ever watched the movie Natural Born Killers? I think that's the best love story of all time. Apparently, I need to watch this movie, because i got to figure out what it's about. <laughs> yeah. Other than the fact that it's about some natural born killers. Or maybe we shouldn't watch it. It's the best love story of all time. <laughs> I want to see if it beats Titanic. But this is a chilling statement because from what I've read, the movie opens with a scene of a girl and her boyfriend murdering her family and running away. Oh. So this is his idea of the best love story of all time. And yet he's blaming Jasmine for everything that happened. Mm-hmm. So kind of ironic or is that the wrong word? I'm not good with grammar. You should ask Oh, me. yeah, you're right. You said homicide just then. Well, what's... What? I usually hear it pronounced homicide, but... Well, you just... You're not from I guess some people say homicide. Not important, though. I'm sorry. I I don't really care about it. Several of Jeremy's friends testified that he had tried to recruit them to help in these murders, and that he threatened them when they refused. Another friend testified that Jeremy was bragging about the murders afterwards, saying that he had gutted Jasmine's parents like fish. Jeremy was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. He doesn't sound like he regrets what he did when he's talking about it. Not when he's talking about it to friends and fellow inmates. Yeah, he does come across as a really cold-hearted and some would say evil person. Mm Mm-hmm. But last week we talked about how Jeremy was abused by three different men in his childhood. And they were all people that uh, his mom was either married to or dating. So they were all quote-unquote father figures. Abuse victims often suffer from PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, which is actually a massive oversimplification of what it actually entails because it covers so many different things. I'm obviously not a qualified psychologist, but I did some research about PTSD from abuse, and according to mentalhelp.net, when post-trauma illnesses occur, they are characterized by the presence of three classes of symptoms. Rosie, do you want to talk about those three things? Yeah. First, the post-trauma victims typically experience vivid, unwanted, and highly intrusive memories of their traumatic events. Intrusive recollections may occur during waking hours or during sleep. 
often in the form of vivid and repetitive nightmares reenacting the trauma. Second, post-trauma victims make efforts to avoid exposing themselves to anything that might remind them of their trauma. Third, post-trauma victims become very anxious and jumpy after their trauma. So basically, as we can see by, by these three things, PTSD can be a very debilitating condition, and post-trauma victims' attempts at avoidance of trauma-related things can push them towards impulsive actions that less frantic people would avoid. Now, we can see evidence of this in Jeremy Steinke's case by the fact that he was willing to follow through with these horrible acts. Um, PTSD victims, this is back to the website, says um, they commonly abuse drugs, and this drug use is thought to begin as a means of coping with trauma, which drug use usually is. Similarly, depression and sexual acting out can be thought of as attempts to cope, but it's often in a dysfunctional way. Now, we see both of these aspects for Jeremy, too. He was constantly abusing drugs, he was drunk and high at the time of the murders, and he was having a dysfunctional sexual relationship with a 12-year-old girl, something most people would think is completely disgusting. Now, often, this is back to the website again, often the thought process for victims of abuse with PTSD is, if I'm damaged goods, I might as well act like it, Similarly, multiple personality disorder and other abuse-related personality disorders represent wide-scale alterations of victims' personalities that help them shield themselves from emotional pain. Hmm. So this is a combination of completely giving up on trying to be a successful person and also altering your personality to shield yourself from emotional pain. And this could have been the root cause of Jeremy becoming such a hardcore goth, wanting to pretend to be a tough goth to escape the pain and helplessness of being violently beaten by a quote-unquote father figure, as well as feeling like damaged goods and not feeling any motivation to try to be a good person because of intense depression. Wow. Thank you for that, Ryan. Yeah. I mean thank you to this website but i mean when i read that i was like everything i'm reading applies to something that jeremy did Mm -hmm. so it's a lot to think about Mm -hmm. now do you want to talk about jasmine and her time in jail and yes in 2009 jasmine was getting intensive rehabilitation at the alberta hospital and she was about to begin having supervised trips off of the hospital grounds This was only two years after her conviction, and she was already going on field trips away from her confinement. In 2010, the court got a report that she was making progress, but having trouble accepting the severity of her crimes. In 2011, Jasmine was released and moved into a group home, and she began studying at Mount Royal University in Calgary. So she only served four years of her six-year sentence to psychiatric hospital, And so in October of 2012, Jasmine was completely living on her own and taking classes. Wow. Yeah. She was reportedly showing signs of remorse and assessed as having a low risk of committing another crime. And in May of 2016, Jasmine appeared in court to have her sentence deemed officially completed, and now she's a free woman. 
If she doesn't commit any crimes between now and May 2021, the murders will be completely expunged from her record. This means employers will not see anything on her background check if she doesn't reoffend by age 27. Well, I know I spent a lot of time um, trying to make sense of everything she did, but this seems completely bonkers to me. I mean, she was responsible for three first-degree murders, and yet she has the potential for having them completely removed from her record. On the other hand, someone could get a DUI with no intentions of malice, and that will forever be on your record. Now, don't get me wrong, DUIs are incredibly irresponsible, and no one should drink and drive. But how much worse is a premeditated triple homicide? Either way, I, I really do respect the Canadian justice system for being more focused on rehabilitation rather than punishment, especially considering all the things that we talked about. Mm-hmm. But personally, I think she should should have gotten her full 10 years, at least in the psych hospital. But yeah, I can see where you're coming from. What I think is so cool about the Canadian justice system is how nobody knew, well, they couldn't say her name. Oh, yeah. Her name was leaked initially because they put out an Amber Alert the day she was missing. But then the very next day, they... They changed it, and she was known as JR until she turned 18. So, yeah, that is really nice, protecting her identity because she was 12. So Jeremy has a new identity now, too. Rosie, you want to talk about that? On January 11, 2012, it was reported that Jeremy had officially changed his name to Jackson May, May being his mother's last name. This name change came to light when he attempted to appeal the jury decision from 2008, stating it was an unreasonable verdict. No, it wasn't, friend, but okay. (laughs) But they replied, letting him know that he missed his 30-day deadline to appeal, and he blamed his unfamiliarity with the criminal system and inability to find a lawyer, saying, I didn't appeal because I'm new to the system and did not know what I was doing at the time. And at the time, could not find a lawyer who would take my case. That's all we got. Jackson May. Yeah, watch out for Jackson May. I don't think he'll be getting out um, anytime soon. But if he does, that's his name now. Why not change your name if you're going to be in prison for the rest of your life? Why not? Yeah. I would too. Yeah, especially if you did something like this. I wouldn't want people to know who I was. Yeah. Unicorn Princess Tears. That's going to be your new name after you commit a murder? It's going to be my jail name. My prison name. Unicorn Princess Tears? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good first draft. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if you enjoy our show, we'd really appreciate a rating. But even if you don't have Apple Podcasts where you can leave us a rating and a review, we'd love to know what you think of our show. So you can tweet us on Twitter at VOVpod or you can DM us on Instagram at VOVpodcast. If you really love our show, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash VOVpodcast. And last week we talked about our different awesome tiers. We just want to mention again that PodCards 2018 are available um they won't be for long yeah there's a very limited amount there's 40 podcasts involved each podcast has 12 (laughs) decks 
So once those 12 decks are gone... For each podcast. Yeah, that's 480 total in the world, which isn't that many because this is the first time there's ever been trading cards for podcasts. Mm -hmm. Thanks to Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss who did a ton of work ordering, sorting, and shipping all of these out to 40 podcasts. I can't even imagine how long that took. Of course, you can email us at vovpodcast at gmail.com, and we encourage anyone who wants to share their story to email us there. Yeah, and check our show notes for all the links to this stuff. Mm-hmm. And thank you for joining us this week and listening to us talk about this case. Yes. And talk to you next week.